Our scripture passage for today is from 1 Timothy 1 through 4. I urge then all of you that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God, our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Amen. Well, I'm looking around for my, my friend with the piece of sports equipment that is not here today. And so I have a children's message for you. It's going to start out a season of children's messages. So kids up through grade five, come on up. We have a children's message for you today. And we're going to talk about our, well, really God's house and the places we pray. So if any kids want to come up, Ruth, it's going to be good to see you up here. Yes, and Izzy, it's good to see you. You were up leading worship. I think that's wonderful. Okay, so we're actually going to step right down here, or stand up. You get maybe a better view from right up the top. We can all be at eye level here. So when we have, let's say, dinner with our family, sometimes we eat sitting at a A table, that's right. Raise your hand out there if you sit at a table to eat your meals. Okay, there's a lot of folks who raise their hand, and then I realized some of you might sit in a chair without a table. How many sit in a chair without a table? They're good. So there's a lot of different places that we can eat. We can actually eat while we're walking. We can eat while we're sitting on the grass like a picnic. But at home, there's a special place where we often eat that gathers us together, and it's a table. Now, what we have right in front of us right here is a... Come on up. What do you think this is? It is a table. We have a table in this room, too. This is God's house. And, and this table is where God's people gather around to have a special meal called communion where the bread stands for Christ's body and the cup is filled with grape juice that stands for Jesus' blood. And these are the, the, this is the meal, the things in the meal that help us know that we are loved by God. And when we share our prayers around this table, it's a very special time. And it's like God giving us a big hug. Let's pray. God, thank you for the hug of communion. Thank you that it covers all of our hurts, all of our wounds, all of our worries. Thank you for giving us your son, Jesus, and for his love for us on the cross, and for your power that raised him to life, that gives us life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, feel free to go back to your seats with your families. All right, we are to the message. A new series titled Expand the Emoji, Leveling Up Your Prayer Life with the Apostle Paul. Expand the emoji. I'll get to that in a second. But leveling up your prayer life with the Apostle Paul, let's start out with that. Each week this summer, we're going to pay attention to 
one of the Apostle Paul's famous encouragements about prayer from his letters. And we are going to note how he encourages us to pray, but also how he prays for the disciples who are in his care. The sermon series provides a foundation for a summer season of prayer. And I mentioned earlier, we're doing a prayer practice class with materials from practicingtheway.org, which is affiliated with Bridgetown Church in Portland, Oregon. And this uh, prayer practice is also a video course that we are led by John Mark Comer, who is the, the president of that organization, former pastor at Bridgetown in Portland, along with uh, Christian Dawson and his wife Yinka, who are on staff there as well. Now, are you familiar with the term leveling up? It's what the kids are saying these days. Or it's what the advertisers are saying these days. It's saying the same thing that, uh, of phrases that you are familiar with. Like, have, have you ever been encouraged to take something up to the next level? Yeah, okay, so I, I hear some people, I see some people nodding, some people saying yes. Uh, have you ever heard anyone say, kick it up a notch? Famous chef, of course, I'm, I'm talking about there in terms of spicing it up a bit. But leveling up is currently a popular way of describing the process of increasing our focus on something. It's like we're at a low level and leveling up means to raise our level, to really to meet up with or match a goal. It's like taking it to the next level, but with a subtle difference. Leveling up opens up the possibility that it's possible that you're not fully living your best life right now. See, taking it to the next level, it doesn't imply, it implies that you're kind of doing really well. You want to go to the next level. Like you're an you're a A-minus student, you want to get an A+. Leveling up opens up the possibility that you've got a little bit of work to do to get to the ground level. Have you ever felt that way in any aspect of life? Where there, there was significant amount of work to do to, just to get to the ground level. Well, we all are at different places in the process of what the Bible calls spiritual maturity. And we're going to talk about that in our prayer life. But we discover that wherever we are in the process as we level up, the Holy Spirit is the one who does the work. We just give the permission the Holy Spirit levels us up. The title of the series, Expand the Emoji, refers to the emoji symbol that you have on your phone. Uh, you have a little menu of characters when you are uh, shooting text back and forth with people. And it's become a custom, and we learned last week that a number of us uh, participate in this custom, of of sharing well wishes with people in text messages and letting them know that we're praying for them by using the prayer emoji. Can you do the prayer emoji with your hands? Those of you who know what I'm talking about, there you go. Yeah, it's, it's like this. Now, some people say it's a high five emoji, uh, but I, I think, you know, in church, we're going to look at it as a prayer emoji. Uh, it's not about that you have to hold your hands in a particular way in prayer, but it's just a recognition that 
it's so easy to just press a button and have prayer done with, isn't it? You know, just, just if we just can push that emoji, it means we've prayed for them, right? Or maybe we push that button and also say a one-sentence prayer for them. We've done all that we can do, right? Well, if we weren't attentive to leveling up our prayer lives with the Apostle Paul, perhaps we'd think that's about all we can do. But it turns out that the prayer life is a place of adventure. It's an adventure. Even the great masters of the prayer life in history have only scratched the surface. Well, where should we start? Where should we start in all of the Apostle Paul's writings? How about we start at the beginning? How about first things first? Did the Apostle Paul ever write about what we should do first when it comes to prayer? Well, as a matter of fact, you heard Joe read that scripture passage from 1 Timothy. I'm going to read it again for you. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. I'm reading from the New International Version. I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, and intercession and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. To Timothy, a younger pastor who was being mentored by the Apostle Paul, and by extension, to the members of the church that Timothy was leading, what was to be done, first of all, was to pray. To pray, first of all. The phrase, first of all, I love the alliteration in Greek. Uh, first is proton, and all is pantone. So, proton, pantone, and by the way, two of the words for prayer in this verse are also start with a P, as well as the verb, I urge you, which is parakaleo. So, it's like five straight words to start with P. You got to keep your distance from the person saying that in Greek because of how it would, might shower you. But this, first of all, speaks to the primacy of prayer. The primacy of prayer. Prayer is job one. Now, biblical scholars wonder if there was a situation that Timothy and his church were facing that was causing prayer to become devalued, for instance. Why did Paul have to level up his teaching game to match a situation? And from the full context of the first letter to Timothy, some have concluded that a lack of harmony among them contributed to a curtailing of their corporate prayer life. One scholar makes this observation about church in general. I'm wondering if you would identify with what he's saying here. He says, When a church turns aside to speculation and disputes, it quickly becomes introverted, right? The only thing you see is the problem within. And one of the first casualties is evangelism, 
together with prayer for the world. And that makes sense, right? We get so concerned about what's happening inside our fellowship, and especially if we're fighting with one another, that we forget that we have a common job to do, arm in arm, side by side, and that is to pray for the world. Turning our attention to what Timothy is instructed to do, we find that first of all means four things, all four being forms of prayer. Now, this has two functions. The first function of this four-word set is to emphasize, it was a common way in Greek writing, to say that you were emphasizing the importance of something, to bring out the thesaurus, and list every word from the thesaurus that means what you're trying to mean. And that way they'll know that one thing you're asking them to do, that you've covered all of the words. And that's kind of what's going on here. Paul is, is emphasizing the importance of prayer through the repetition of a series of synonyms. And it reinforces the basic word, which is the first thing we need to do is Pray. And yet, they, these four words also paint a picture of the range and diversity of prayer. Distinct chords that are woven together into the lifeline that is prayer. Let's take them one at a time. Petitions. Petitions are appeals arising out of a need. And so, this word petitions really has its emphasis on the sense of need that you have. If you have a need, a deep felt need, or you know someone that has a great need, whether it's health, or whether it is a job, or whether it is uh, it's hope, if that's a deep need, you are, your prayer life is going to follow the path of petition to God. Because you're reaching out to God for help with what is needed. Now, when the text says prayers, that word is actually the word that is used most commonly for prayer. So that's just the basic word for prayer. But that word in itself has an emphasis on devotion. That's the word that's always used to describe praying people. You know how we, we sometimes uh, use the term prayer warriors? This is the word that in Scripture describes those prayer warriors. And in the early church, they were mo- the ones that were pointed out as prayer warriors were mostly widows. They had a, a, a high status in the Christian community for one reason. They were part of a community whose first job was to what? Pray. And they were the leaders of prayer. They were the most devoted to prayer in a community, in a family who should be dedicated to prayer. Third, intercession. Intercession is a word that comes from the world of authority, stratified authority, not a flat organizational structure, but have any of you served in the military? Okay, few of you have served in the military. That is more, you need intercessionary skills in the military. To get anything done, you have to run something up the chain and get permission from someone above you, someone with authority, an authority to do something about the situation where you're at. 
And so intercession involves requests addressed to a superior, someone with more power than you have. And so when we speak of intercessory prayer, that is actually our prayer linking into God as the God who has the power and the authority to respond to it effectively. It emphasizes that aspect. And finally, the fourth word is a word that you know very well, and that is thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is what you think it is. And it's emphasized throughout the New Testament as an indispensable component of prayer. It's one that empowers further prayer as we, in our thanksgiving to God, recall how God has answered our requests for needs, our requests for God's power to be brought to our situations. Well, returning to verse 1 of chapter 2, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people. For whom should we pray? All people. Some of you are wondering right now, okay, there's got to be some way of getting meaning from this statement short of a requirement that requires us to pray for, by name, all 8 billion people who live on this planet. I mean, we're invited into prayer as human beings, so we have to pray in ways that are humanly possible as we invite God to do what humans can't do. One thing is for sure, whatever the specific meaning of the phrase all people, it has the effect of expanding our outlook when it comes to prayer. In fact, it calls us to look out as we look up. In a couple of weeks, we'll find in our exploration of prayer this summer, that prayer also has an interior dimension. In fact, some of us, the first thing we think of with prayer, we think of it as a very private thing, as a very introspective thing, a a way to, you know, kind of, in a sense, retreat into the safety of our soul, a place where we can commune and communicate with God, and that is part of prayer. But what's remarkable about this, first of all, teaching from the Apostle Paul, is that that isn't emphasized What's emphasized is that prayer is an outlook first. Prayer leads us to look around us at people, at, yes, family members, church members, neighbors, but even beyond that, right? All people, we may not get to 8 billion, but whenever a person or a situation comes into our consciousness, It's always something we can pray about. Prayer here is placed squarely in the aspect of the church that is known as mission. That challenges us. A lot of us want to take spirituality and put that in a different category or in a different room of the church building, so to speak. But here what the Apostle Paul is talking about is saying, prayer is part of mission. It's part of your outlook on the world as followers of Christ. We are called to pray with the world in view. 
Okay, so about five years into my career as a pastor, I was the associate pastor at the time, kind of uh, like the acting interim pastor at the time. That's a long story. Uh, I've, I've done that a number of times uh, myself. And, uh, but at this time, we, God gave us, basically, the gift of a very experienced pastor who earlier in his career had been the pastor at First Presbyterian Church of Berkeley, California. Uh, during the, the riots and the demonstrations of the 60s, his name was Reverend Harold England. And uh, I was about 27 at the time, and I think he was 77 at the time. And what he was to me was a great gift. And here's one of the things I will always remember from him is that he came into the church. So this, my way of describing this little story is, is when a wise pastor observed the corporate prayers of a very cool California congregation. Because we were a cool California congregation. We did not pray in stuffy ways using heightened uh, King James Version language uh, no, sir, that's not what we did. We were cool. Our tie was loosened. Most of the time, we didn't have ties. During the, the, the summer months, our most attended service was outdoors in the covered patio of our wonderful, beautifully appointed church facility. And we were actually very proud, and I can count myself in that. We were proud of how we did prayer, because we did prayer in a very participatory way, not unlike our congregation. Here's what Harold England observed when he came to our church, is about three weeks into his time there, during our staff meeting, he just had something he wanted to share with us, and he said, uh, Tell me about the way you all pray. You know, when did this practice start? What are you hoping to do with it, etc.? And he shared the parts of it that, that he thought really were faithful and, and it, it was a, a great thing. He didn't necessarily tear what we were doing down, but he said that he'd been at our church for three straight weeks and there was not one prayer that escaped the realm of the congregation. It was all prayer for us and our needs. Legitimate needs. Needs that we are called to pray for. But this, what we're seeing the Apostle Paul lift up, is that we should have an outlook of prayer. We should look out on the world and pray for the world. Pray for all people. No, not all, each, eight billion, each of the eight billion, but definitely eyes open to see people who aren't within the internal group of the church. It's hard to balance that, isn't it? You know, even though I remember clearly that lesson, I find it to be a challenge to, to, uh, to set up corporate worship uh, in order to, to give space to those prayers. All people means that there's no one who enters our lives who we shouldn't pray for. And Paul might, in fact, be addressing a deficit in, these, in our natural patterns for prayer, like, like 
Reverend Harold England did in my church. And he quickly continues in verse 2 with an example of all the people who we should pray for. He writes in verse 2, For kings and those in authority. For kings and those in authority. Here Timothy and his church are encouraged to pray for the Roman emperor and all the subordinate officials at every level. Be sure you pray for them in the list of all the people you pray for. It's important to note some things about kings and all who were in authority at this time. This was in the first century. There were likely very few Christian believers who were in these posts. Maybe occasionally, but very few. Why pray for pagan rulers and officials whose political philosophy and lifestyles were an antithesis to the gospel of Jesus? Now, it may be a reflection of the New Testament teaching on obedience to the state, who in God's economy has an important role to play. You can look up Romans 13 for a good example of that. But the remainder of verse 2 shows a wider sense of strategy. I mean, what's more strategic in praying for all people than to pray for those whose actions so significantly impact all the people. Think about it. Continuing in verse 2, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is a legitimate purpose that I think we all can identify with. I mean, who doesn't like peace and quiet? It's kind of nice, isn't it? Maybe this summer, in, in your, your leisure time or on your travels, you might find a place of peace and quiet. And yet, it might come across as a bit domesticated for a world-changing community of faith like the church. In this respect, it's important to understand the context. The fledgling church in the first century was, was following the lead of the Jewish synagogue, which often was where the group and the family of faith or believers in Christ, where they started meeting and where that meeting came out of. And Jewish synagogues, and then therefore the early church, were under great scrutiny and at times were openly persecuted by all levels of the Roman government. Peace and quiet was something they had little of. And this prayer target would ensure the welfare of God's people under pagan rule, allowing them to both live the Christian life in community and have a strong and healthy community life to invite others into as they shared the gospel of Jesus with their neighbors. So there's a practical aspect to that strategy. You know, a, a, a healthy Community life in the church is part of the mission. It is part of evangelism. We, we do invite people into a community of faith. And when that community of faith is oppressed, as there are many community of faiths around the world who are, by the local government, then the church is, is challenged by that. So we pray that, that 
the church will be able to flourish and thrive. But it's also a bit subversive. Subversive. That, that word, I'm using subversive in the, in the, the very practical sense of the term. Uh, when you just are trying to be as faithful as you can. When being faithful might be not very acceptable within a society. So, during the Jewish diaspora, that's when, the, when basically uh, Jews were, were dispersed from Palestine into the, the wider Mediterranean world. And that preceded the expansion of the church. That's why when the Apostle Paul went from city to city, there was always a Jewish synagogue there and a, a bunch of Jewish worshipers in those Roman towns in Asia Minor and in Greece and even in Italy. In that diaspora movement, the monotheistic Jews came under heavy pressure to worship and pray to the many gods of the culture in which they were living. And what made matters worse is that some human leaders were to be worshipped as gods. At various points in the first century, all, Rome, all people who lived under Roman leadership were required to say, Caesar is Lord. That changes how we look at that phrase, Jesus is Lord, doesn't it? So the, synagogue gained, gained, the synagogues gained goodwill by publicly praying for political leaders. But they also, it also helped them to avoid praying to those leaders. It's almost like it, I, I find a little bit of comedy in this where, where uh, some people who are part of the uh, enforcement team, say, in a particular town, they would knock on the synagogue door and say, now you know we need you to pray to Caesar. And the head of the synagogue replying, got it, got it. Okay, we will pray for Caesar. Get it? Subtle difference, subversive, right? Praying for Caesar is something completely different than praying to Caesar. I think, you know, with this being the, the 4th of July weekend, it's, it's a good time to pause and think about our prayer lives in relation to the nation in which we live. And we are called, you know, it's a perfect uh, invitation for us to pray with an outlook at our society and pray for our political leaders. But not so much in the way that, that it tends to happen. It's a natural thing that happens in the church, I think, where, you know, like we, we, uh, we kind of pray along with and for political leaders who, who we voted for. And if, if leaders are those we didn't vote for, now we kind of pray against them. You know, we, we, you know, have you ever been part of that prayer team you know, where, where like, uh, like if one person gets elected, one, this group is really happy and they're praying prayers of affirmation. Isn't it great that we have this person up? And, and then over here, you have uh, Lord help this person. He, you know, he, he or she doesn't know what they're doing. And and then, the next, and then the next election, you're just switching roles back and forth. This text is meant to be a text and an invitation for all seasons, regardless of what political party is in power. 
It's a recognition that we are invited to pray for them. And in a bit, I'll tell you a little bit more of the content with it. But I think of one of my favorite lines, I was reminded of this when I was talking with our worship planning team about, about songs, uh, patriotic songs. Uh, one of my favorite songs, uh, American patriotic songs, is America the Beautiful, Catherine Lee Bates. Uh, it's just a, a great song. The story of its writing is a, is a, is a beautiful story in and of itself. But, but one of the reasons I like it is, is a certain part of the, of the first verse, uh, some of you are familiar with the phrase, God shed his grace on thee. And that's a great prayer to pray. God shed his grace on thee. We can pray, God, God shed your grace on every political leader that has influence over my community. But the second verse, at that very place, the verse says, God mend thine every flaw. You see, America is beautiful, but not perfect. That's the point. So we do pray for people who aren't perfect. We have a lot of experience doing that. That includes our country. We have flaws. And so we can ask God to shed God's grace on our country, but also ask that God would mend our country's every flaw. And this leads us to the purpose of prayer. While we are called to include matters of state in our prayers, prayer itself has a mission that transcends politics. So we're talking about praying for uh, kings and those in authority. But prayer serves a purpose in a kingdom far above any earthly authority. God's kingdom is concerned with all people. And in verses 3 and 4, we learn why it's important that we pray for all people and for the earthly political leaders who influence their lives. Verses 3 and 4. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. This is why we pray for all people. God has a desire, a heart, to save them, to bring salvation to their lives. In the words of New Testament scholar I. Howard Marshall, Paul, the Apostle Paul, bases the command to pray for all people in the universal saving will of the one and only God. The universal saving will. That's why we pray for all people. So who do we pray for? Look around. And then look up. Look beyond your circle. Look behind the events in society to see who has power. To those who have the greatest influence on the greatest numbers of people. And those who have influence even on the church's witness to the gospel of Jesus. And when we're praying for all people, what do we pray for? Well, pray for what is pleasing to God. That all people will be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. The truth of the one God and one mediator between God and humankind, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for who? All people. Let's pray.
First of all, we pray, Lord, remember your church. The church in this place, the church scattered, the church of many a name of a denomination, churches in every land. Unite your church in the truth of your word and empower it in ministry to the world. Turn their prayers or their prayerful eyes upon the world around them, even as we do it in this moment, and ask that you would remember our nation. And we pray for our leaders, those of prominence and influence, and pray for their salvation that they would embrace your truth your will be done on earth as it is in heaven remember the world of nations and by your spirit Lord renew the face of the earth and let peace and justice prevail In union with your church in heaven and on earth, we pray, O God, that you will fulfill your eternal purpose in us and in all the world through Jesus our Savior. Amen.